good to see everyone this afternoon. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark. And we will be reading the words found in verse 23 through verse 28. Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need, and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest? And ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Please pray with me. Lord, it's a great comfort that as we come to your word, we're reminded that it is your word, the word of an all-powerful, sovereign, and good God who loves your children, who even loves your enemies. And Lord, it gives us great comfort to know that we have not been left as orphans, but that you have sent us your spirit to assist us in understanding your truth. So I pray that that you would help us to grasp the depths of your word, that you would even give us strength of mind to follow Jesus' proclamation here, that we would see the logic in the passage, and that we clearly see how each of us needs to respond to it that you would be pleased. We ask this because, again, we are very much aware that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so even as we seek to abide in you, I pray that you, Christ, would assist us as we hear your word. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So I've been reading... The Adventures of Robin Hood to My Children at Night. That's the book that we're currently in. We typically read one story or another every night of the week, if available. But right now we're in Robin Hood, and as many people know, Robin Hood was an excellent archer and an excellent swordsman. In fact, he was the best in all of England. But he was also a master of disguises. And throughout all the stories... In almost every single one, Robin Hood is putting on a disguise as he tries to fool the sheriff of Nottingham and his men. However, towards the end of the book, the tables actually get turned on Robin Hood, and he himself becomes the victim of a disguise. Because King Richard himself, whom Robin Hood is actually, through all of his plundering the rich, secured his ransom so that King Richard can return to England. He secures his ransom, and King Richard is marching through Sherwood Forest all all by himself. I think he was with maybe one other man. 
and he's accosted by Robin Hood. And he's more or less forced to take, um, take part in a, in a boxing match as part of his toll through traveling through Sherwood Forest. So basically what would happen is one of Robin Hood's men would get a chance to clock him across the face. And if he took it, he would get a chance to return the favor. Well, it turns out he takes care of all of Robin's men one at a time and eventually Robin Hood himself. Because after all, this is King Richard. He's like the mightiest warrior in all of England, as a true king should be. However, later on in the story, when his identity is revealed, they're all suddenly terrified because they know to lay a hand upon the king of England would mean sudden death because it's treason. And so they're terrified. Had they known who it was, they wouldn't have dared to even lift their heads to him, let alone lift their fists. We have another such case of mistaken identity in the passage before us. Had the Pharisees known that the man they were speaking to was the king of heaven, there is no way that they would have challenged him the way that they do. And even after he tells them who he was, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, they fail to recognize him because of the false assumptions they have about who the Messiah would be, what he would look like. And the same error of mistaking the identity of Jesus Christ continues to happen even by people today because of the preconceptions we have of what Jesus is like. Quite often, the Jesus people worship is not the one described in the Bible, but it's one that has been manufactured through our own imaginations. We choose the Jesus that most fits our desires and our wants and our expectations rather than the one that is truly revealed in the Word. Well, how do we know if, the, if we trust the one triune God revealed in Scripture or an idol that we have manufactured in our own mind? Well, one way to identify an idol is to consider what is it that upsets us. What is it that sets us off when people do something? The reason the Pharisees are so upset with Jesus is because he has transgressed their idol. It's because Jesus and his disciples are violating their law, the law that they had created. Jesus had the nerve to violate one of their Pharisaical traditions. And they're furious. And that's what prompts this question they ask. Look at uh, verse 23. It says, And they happened, it happened that as he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain, the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And as in the previous story, this account is driven by a question, a question coming from the Pharisees. And they notice that as Jesus and his disciples are walking 
past these grain, these fields of grain, they're plucking the heads off of the wheat or whatever grain it was, the barley or the corn. And then they were eating them. Now, it's important to know that there's, there's nothing wrong with what they're doing. In fact, uh, the, the law actually made provision for anybody that was traveling or who had need of food that they could pluck off anybody's heads of grain as they were traveling along a wheat field. Deuteronomy 23:25. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you should not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Well, they're not putting a sickle to it. They're just plucking the heads. They're, they're actually doing something the law has provided for. So the problem is not that they're plucking grain. The problem is that they're doing it on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath. Now, as we know, the Sabbath is the last day of the week, Saturday. And it was established by God in creation, but God commanded Israel to keep the Sabbath after he had brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, rescuing them from their slavery to the Egyptians. And he commanded them to do no work on the Sabbath because he wanted it to be a day of rest. So no work was to be done on the Sabbath. But of course, that provokes this question. What constitutes work? And that question led to much debating within the rabbis and the scribes of Israel. And to be safe and make sure that nobody even came close to violating this command not to break the Sabbath, they came up with a list of do's and don'ts, laws to make absolutely certain that nobody violated this command. In fact, the Mishnah lists 39 classes of work that would profane the Sabbath. And it included things such as tying knots or loosening knots, sewing more than one stitch. Two would be overboard. Or even writing more than one letter. I'm not talking like letter to a friend, more than one alphabetical letter. And you've worked. And so since the disciples were technically reaping grain in the plucking of the heads, they believed that this actually constituted work. So even though they're not taking a sickle to it, just in the plucking of the grain, they're saying you can't do that on the Sabbath. So although the Sabbath prohibited work, there is, again, no prohibition for what the disciples are doing. Just what... The Pharisees have said they're not violating God's law. They're just violating the Pharisees' traditions, their man-made law. So again, the disciples are doing nothing wrong before God. In fact, this should be obvious to us because God is right there with them, giving them the okay. They're only doing, again, what's wrong according to the tradition established by the Pharisees. However, In the mind of a Pharisee, to violate one of their traditions that was used to keep one from breaking any of the law, that was the same as breaking the law itself. So they had equated their laws with the laws of Scripture. What God had actually revealed in His Word. And thus they asked this question, why are your disciples doing this? And the answer Jesus gives 
is intended not only to give them an answer, but really he wants to reveal to them their errors. And what he will show them in his response is that they make three critical errors revealed by this question they ask. They misunderstand the law. They misinterpret scripture. And because of that, they mistake Jesus's identity. So we need to understand these three errors because these same three errors are made and have been made again and again throughout history. They're repeated by Christians today. And we need to make sure that we ourselves are not falling prey to the very same errors these Pharisees made. So the first error they make is that they misunderstand the law. They misunderstand the law. Well, let's begin by asking the question that they they bring up. What was the purpose of the Sabbath? See, they misunderstood the purpose of the Sabbath. Well, if I were to ask you that same question, would your answer be different than the Pharisees? If I asked you, what is the purpose of the Sabbath? What would you say? And would it be different from what the Pharisees said? Why was Israel supposed to keep the Sabbath? Why did God require the Sabbath to be observed? Well, in verse 27, it says that the Sabbath was made for man. The error error the Pharisees make is that they misunderstand the purpose of the Sabbath. It was supposed to be a blessing to people. Again, God gave this command to observe the Sabbath right after he had rescued them from being slaves in Egypt, where they were forced to work day and night often, without any break, laboring as slaves under a cruel, harsh slave master. In this command, God is demonstrating that he is not going to be like Pharaoh. He's not going to be a slave master to them. But he's going to treat them like a father would his own children. That's what's communicated actually in this command. The law was designed to be a blessing. The law was designed to be a blessing. In fact, one of the biggest errors that's propagated today by pastors is that they would say the law was only meant to show us our need for Christ. That that's the purpose of the law, to just show us our need for Christ. Well, yes, the law does show us our need to Christ. It exposes our sin. It points us to Christ. But that's not the only point. If that was the only point, then really it was a complete waste until we get the New Testament. But then they'd say, well, now that we got the New Testament, we don't need the Old Testament, which means we don't need the Old Testament to begin with. The, the law was given to do more than just point us to Christ. It was given to Israel and to the nations who would hear it in order that they might know how they could dwell in the presence of a holy God. The law was given to be a blessing to Israel. Yes, it will point them to Christ, but it had a purpose beyond that as well. And this is why the psalmist can declare, Oh, how I love 
your law. It wasn't, it wasn't just a billy club to beat people open and, and just expose their sin. Yes, it would do that. But that wasn't its only purpose. It was meant to be a blessing. And those who understood this loved it. So the Mosaic law was given to be a blessing to the people. It was really a guide to enjoy life. It wasn't a tourniquet meant to quench life like the Pharisees were using it. God commanded the Sabbath really so that men would learn to trust him. That they would learn that they could cease from work on that day and God would still provide for them. He would continue to meet all their needs. He was training man not to rely upon their own strength, but upon his strength. He would give them rest and he would continue to provide for them even while they rested. Secondly, the Sabbath was a reminder of past and future blessing. See, really, the Sabbath was actually a reminder of God's original creation in the Garden of Eden. That man was not created to labor in pain, but really to bask in the enjoyment of God forever. That's what he was designed for. The pain and labor didn't happen until after sin, until the curse. And this is why Jesus makes this promise in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I point this verse out in particular because in Matthew's account, when he gives this statement, the very next story that comes is this account that we're reading, that we're studying right now in Mark 2. The question of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, the design of the Sabbath was always to give you rest. And ultimately, I will bring you that rest. So the Sabbath was meant to be a reminder that man was designed for God, not work. Or better yet, man was created to find his rest in God. That's what the Sabbath was meant to teach people. But the Pharisees twisted God's purpose, like taking a pillow and transforming it into a dumbbell. What had once become a comfort, or was designed for comfort, had now become a heavy burden. The Pharisees had turned this balm of the Sabbath which was meant to soothe his people, and they turned it into an acid. Again, what was meant to soothe the soul was now wearing it away. The Sabbath was meant to be a blessing, not a burden. And that's how they misunderstood the law. In their reverence for the law, in their desire to never violate the law, they had actually undermined the law. And the fact that the Pharisees care more about the the stipulations than they do than caring about people shows how far they've twisted their understanding of it is. I mean, again, how did Jesus summarize the whole law and the prophets? How did Jesus summarize all the Old Testament? Love 
the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And you don't see any of that in the question that the Pharisees ask. They totally miss the point. The Sabbath was made for man, but they were using it against man. And before we're too harsh on the Pharisees, I think we need to be honest and recognize that we too can find ourselves so zealous for doctrines and traditions that we also fail to love people. We care more about being right than doing right. And I think probably all of us know somebody, whether it's in, at work or in our family, who's very good at showing you how much they know but they're not so good at showing you how much they care. And this is a temptation in the church because truth is important. Because if if we don't rightly grasp the truth, we got nothing to stand on. Our faith is empty if we don't understand the truth. The truth is absolutely important. We can't misunderstand God's law like the Pharisees did. We've got to get it straight. And so we rightly emphasize truth. And yet, the very truth that we often staunchly defend with our tongues is often undermined by our actions and our attitudes. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I've just become a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. If I deliver my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. It's worthless. So, when Paul is describing love here in 1 Corinthians 13, he's not describing mere sentimentality or the, the kind of love that we might have for a pet. The love that Paul is describing is self-sacrificial love. But the reality is that it's not hard to learn. But it is hard to love like this. Pharisees are the great example. Think about how much they knew and yet how little they loved. Anybody can go to school and learn truth. But to care about somebody, to care about somebody more than you care about yourself, that takes the power of the Holy Spirit. God's got to bring that about. But of course, the Pharisees don't have that. They have the law, but they they fail to understand the very thing that they assert to be experts in. Again, they were like, we are, we know the law better than anybody. I mean, do you see the irony in this? They were experts in the law and they didn't know it at all. It's like a man who's married to his wife and he doesn't know her. Or a parent who has a child. There is child, but they don't know him. It's tragic. 
The second error they make is they misinterpret the Scripture. You see this? They, they lack grace because they misunderstand the law. And they lack truth. They misunderstand the Scripture. They don't have grace or truth. They misinterpret the Scripture. Now, of course, the Pharisees hadn't the slightest inkling that they had misunderstood anything. Again, because they had been trained by the best teachers and the best schools. Everyone in all of Israel respected them as the experts. If you had a question about what a Bible verse meant, you would go to them. And whatever they said, you'd say, yes, now I see, even if you don't. And so to tell them that they were in error would be like walking up to a a seminary professor here in the States and telling them that they're wrong. So what Jesus is doing is bold. And they certainly aren't expecting this. Now, Jesus could easily have said, well, the answer to your question, Pharisees, why are they plucking heads of grain, doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath, is because they're not breaking God's law, but yours. And your law, frankly, doesn't matter. But that's not what he says, which is interesting. He could have just been blunt. But his response demonstrates that he's trying to reach them still. He wants them to see what they're getting wrong. He wants them to have their eyes opened. He sees that they're blind and they don't get it. But instead of just beating them back, he wants them to see where their error is. He wants them to see the inconsistencies in their system of ethics. And to do so, he appeals to a very familiar Bible story. The story of David, who when he was fleeing for his life from Saul, who wanted to kill him, David found himself desperate for food and for provisions. Notice what it says in verse 25. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need, and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the consecrated bed, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with them, or with him. Now, this is an interesting account. And as you're, as you're reading what G, what's going on here in Mark 2, you see that Jesus is answering their question by giving a story. Well, what, how does that follow? How is it, what does this account have to do with the Pharisees' question? Well, that's what we have to find out. Well, first of all, Jesus chooses this account, I think, for two reasons. First of all, It has a number of parallels with the current situation. David and his men were hungry. They needed bread. Jesus and his disciples were hungry. In a sense, we're eating bread. And they also take place on the Sabbath. We know that the story of David takes place on the Sabbath because it says in Leviticus 24, 8, that that is the day that the bread was removed from before the tabernacle or within the tabernacle. And so this is taking place on the Sabbath as well. Secondly, this story exposes the flaw in the Pharisees' handling of Scripture. And and the flaw is seen in their inconsistencies of their man-made laws. 
See, if they recognized that it was fine for David to eat this bread, the bread of the presence, on the Sabbath, then plucking a few heads of grain while walking along should have been okay too. But of course it prompts this question. So we'll go into a little parentheses here. Was it okay for David to eat the bread of the presence? We have to wrestle with this, I think, to really understand what Jesus is getting at. Was it okay for David to eat the bread of the presence? Well, this is interesting. There's actually no violation of a biblical law in this account. This is all that the Bible says regarding the eating of the bread of the presence. Turn to Leviticus chapter 24, verse 9. We looked at this a couple months ago, but for memory, it says this. Regarding the bread of the presence, it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. For it's most holy to him from the Lord's offerings by fire, his portion forever. Okay, so this is what would happen. After the bread had served its purpose, symbolizing the, the Israel being in the presence of God in the tabernacle, the bread would then be relieved, removed and the priests would eat it. And the emphasis here is that the bread is for the priests. It's been set aside for Aaron and his sons to consume. God provided it to the priests for them to eat. And this is noteworthy that there's actually no prohibition in this verse against laymen eating the bread. You think, well, well, it does say that it was holy and it was for the priests. Okay, yes, it does. But it's noteworthy there's no prohibition because there's actually a prohibition made regarding eating the bread for the ordination offering. Explicitly. In Exodus um, 29, verses 32 to 33, it says, Aaron... It says, Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that's in the basket and the door of the tent of meaning. Thus they shall eat those things by which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration. But a layman shall not eat them because they are holy. Again, this prohibition against layman eating the bread is only given in regarding to the ordination offering. And typically there's going to be a specific prohibition in one place you would expect it in another So why not an explicit prohibition made for the bread of the presence? Well, I think that the the point of the bread of the presence being for the priests is just that. It's for the priests. It's the priests. It's not available for everybody. It's the priests to eat. But that doesn't mean that the priests, if a need arises, that they can't give it to somebody. And such was the case in the story of David and Ahimelech. So true, it would be very out of the ordinary to allow others to eat the bread, but it wasn't actually breaking any law of Scripture. In fact, the only law that David and his men break is the traditions of the Pharisees. And so Jesus is saying, in effect, if you think we're breaking the law, then David and the high priest and his men too are breaking the law which your interpretation won't allow. 
You want to give David a, an okay, a thumbs up, but for us, you want to condemn. You're being inconsistent. See, the Pharisees' error is that they were looking at the Scripture through legalistic lenses. That's, what, that's what's causing them to stumble. They wanted to find laws of do's and don'ts instead of seeking to understand what the author meant to communicate, what the Scripture intended. And this would be like sitting down to read a love letter and only looking for the commands, taking out a highlighter and, and, and highlighting all the commands, all the imperatives in a love letter and only pay, paying attention to those. Well, that's a really stupid way to read a love letter. You're probably going to miss the most important stuff. And the Pharisees' superficial approach to Scripture is what led them to their failure to recognize Christ as the Lord of the Sabbath. And this is also why it's critical for us to interpret the Bible carefully. You may have heard that it's if, if all you do is rake the surface of Scripture, all you're going to get is leaves that are quickly blown away in the wind. But if you dig into the Word, you'll find diamonds. Well, there is a diamond in the text before us. And I wonder if you saw it. Many scholars who have little confidence in the Scripture have said that Jesus or Mark have made an error. Because Abiathar wasn't actually the high priest in this account with David. It was actually Abiathar's father, Ahimelech. So why Abiathar, not Ahimelech? Why does Jesus say it was in the time of Abiathar, the high priest? Well, first of all, he doesn't actually say it was when Abiathar was high priest, but it was in the time of Abiathar, the high priest. So he's still being consistent. But it still begs this question, why does he say Abiathar and not Ahimelech? Ahimelech's the one that's in the story. Well, again, Abiathar was the son of Ahimelech. Now, what happened is shortly after this event, when David and his men received the bread from the high priest Ahimelech, Saul gets word of this, and in anger he kills all of the priests of Nod. They're all slaughtered, and only one person escapes, and that's Abiathar, Ahimelech's son Abiathar. And he becomes David's trusted advisor. In fact, he becomes David's high priest after Saul. And he go, he's, he's with David throughout all of his campaigns um, and uh, throughout everything, essentially. And then David has his children, and then David passes away. And right about that time, when Solomon came to power, Abiathar, along with Joab, disregarded Solomon as king and instead supported his brother, Solomon's brother, Adonijah. Well, Solomon was king. And he had these men disciplined. And as part of the discipline that Adonijah received is he lost 
the high priesthood. And not just he, but so did his descendants. And in fact, the high priesthood was now given to the line of Zadok. So because of his disloyalty, Solomon, because he failed to recognize the true king, he lost his priesthood. And I believe that the reason Jesus mentions Abiathar instead of Ahimelech is because he wants the Pharisees to recognize something. He's dropping a hint. He's conveying that something is greater than what first meets, meets the eye. He's saying, don't mistake the true king like Abiathar did. I'm the king. Don't mistake it for somebody else. But because the Pharisees misinterpret Scripture, they do mistake the identity of Jesus, and they fail to recognize the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus says in verse 28, The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So Jesus' point is that if you recognize, again, Pharisees, that the law was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, then the Son of Man, the greatest of men, has authority over the Sabbath. And we use the term the Son of Man. He's, again, using that term, the Messianic term from Daniel, the book of Daniel. He's revealing himself that he is the Messiah. And he's saying quite overtly, I say what can and cannot be done on the Sabbath, not you guys. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And interestingly enough, when Jesus reveals his identity, instead of bowing their knees like Peter did and declaring, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, the Pharisees instead plot to kill him. In Mark chapter 3, verse 6, which we'll look at next week, it makes that explicit. Well, why? Why did the Pharisees want to kill Jesus? Because Jesus threatened their God, their traditions, their idol, their rules. And when Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, he's saying, I am Lord of you. I am the Lord of heaven and earth. See, either Jesus was God and Lord of the Sabbath, or the Pharisees had misunderstood the law and were misinterpreters of Scripture. See, either the Pharisees were wrong in almost everything they believed, or Jesus is wrong. See, either either the Pharisees were right and Jesus is crazy, or they were wrong and Jesus is Lord. And all of us here today, we're faced with the very same question. Do we have to answer? Was Jesus a lunatic or a liar? Or was he Lord? If Jesus was crazy... We can just blow off everything he says in this book. He's a liar. He's crazy. And in fact, 
the Pharisees did us a favor by taking out a rambling fool. It was good that they killed him. If he was a liar. But if he's telling the truth, and he's the Lord of heaven and earth, then we all need to obey everything he says. I believe many people actually recognize that Jesus is Lord. And they still blow him off. They still ignore his words. and Instead, they just choose to live how they want. But do you realize that is more foolish than just thinking he's a lunatic or a liar? To recognize that he is the Lord of heaven and earth and then to ignore him? I mean, that's lunacy. That's crazy. If Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth, we are bound to obey him. And not just in the things that we want, but in the things that are hard for us to do. And this brings us back to Matthew chapter 7. As Jesus closed his Sermon on the Mount. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And it fell. And great was its fall. Let's pray. Lord, we don't want to be fools. And so we ask that you would be merciful to us. Forgive us for our transgressions, but also that you would be merciful to give us help to see where our life does not line up with your word. That we would not be like the foolish man who thought what he was doing was so great and wonderful and safe and yet find out in the last day that it was all junk. And see all that we've invested in be destroyed. Lord, I pray that you'd have mercy upon us. And if there's anyone here who has not submitted their life to you and trusted in the grace and forgiveness that you provide, that you'd be merciful to them and give them faith that they might believe and receive eternal life. We ask these things in Christ's name.